All right, New Life Friday night. Welcome, grab your seats. Tonight we've got a really, really fun night ahead of us, a special treat. A friend of mine from Portland, Oregon flew in this week and Tyler Staten is here to preach. He's the pastor of Bridgetown Church in Portland and he's also the president or the, the director of 24-7 Prayer USA. Some of you know Pete Gregg. Pete Gregg's been around here for a decade, right? So Pete Gregg and Tyler and I, were all friends and, and Tyler, Pete has asked Tyler to lead 24-7 Prayer in the United States of America. So Tyler is doing that. He's a man of God, married, three little boys. He's, he's just crushing it out in Portland. And Portland is a place that needs a strong bastion of the kingdom of God. And they're leading that out there. So tonight, would you do me a favor and just welcome Tyler as he preaches, say yes and amen, give it to him. Let's go, let's lean into the word of God tonight. But join me tonight in welcoming Pastor Tyler Staten. I want to uh, begin with three true stories. First one, I'm uh, sitting next to my wife, Kirsten, in a church meeting on a Wednesday night, and her phone keeps buzzing against the table, so eventually she turns it over and looks at it, and it's her father calling, and so she steps out to take the call, and he doesn't even say hello, just the doctor just left the room. He's not going to make it. And he couldn't say much after that. He got choked up with tears. You see, uh, Kirsten's brother, Van, uh, had some chest pain uh, that he thought was nothing more than heartburn just a few days prior. He went to a walk-in clinic, was rushed to the hospital for emergency open-heart surgery. It turned out that he had a torn aorta. Uh, his primary heart valve was gushing blood internally. And so a few days after that, they had just broken the news. He is not going to make it. So we leave this church thing right away, living in New York City at the time, get the next flight out, and by the time we got to the hospital where he was in Nashville, they had some more information that Van was scheduled for surgery, but the surgery had a better chance of killing him than it did healing him, but it was the only option left. And so I prayed. I mean, there I am in this hospital room with my head buried in my hands and that ultimate act of desperation and mystery and hope called prayer. And three days later, Van woke up in a hospital room after a successful surgery. One of the surgeons came into his recovery room and began to tell us about the moment in the surgery uh, when everything came together. Five hours into the surgery, he gave up, officially declared Van deceased, and then a nursing student whose only role was to stand in the operating room, handing the surgeon the scissors when he asked for them, began to pray aloud in the operating room. And at that moment, he located the tear that he had not been able to find for the previous five hours, sewed it up, and Van was just fine. Miraculous. Yeah. Miraculous, not my word. That is the word that the non-believing, non-praying surgeon used to describe it as tears ran down his cheeks and he recounted the story to the family. Second story. 
There's a woman named Monica. She's a single mom with one son. She is a devout believer who sang hymns and prayed over her baby nightly. He grew up to see the world a whole lot different than she did. Uh, he became known in their city for public drunkenness and as a womanizer. Uh, he became a professor and used all of his intellect to philosophically combat his mother's Christian faith. But Monica didn't give up. She just continued to pray for her son's salvation. When he was 19, uh, he, she had a dream through which she believed that God was promising to answer her prayers for her son. So she got more intense in her prayer. And then a year passed. And then another year. And then another year. Nine years after that uh, dream, her son was in a garden alone on an ordinary afternoon. He heard the voice of God, opened the very scriptures that he despised, and surrendered his life to Jesus. His name is St. Augustine. He is arguably the most famous theologian in the history of the world and a father to the early Christian church. One more. Myeongsang Presbyterian Church in Seoul, Korea started a morning prayer meeting 20 years ago with about 40 people. Now there are 12,000 people that gather in that church in one of the world's global cities every day. That one prayer meeting has been split into three. They have prayer meetings at 4 a.m., 5 a.m. and 6 a.m. Yes, 6 a.m. is the latecomer's prayer meeting. <laughs> they have to close and lock the doors of the church on the hour because it is standing room only in every one of those prayer meetings. That means if you arrive at 4.01, you are waiting outside in the cold, dark, early morning for an hour just to get in to pray. Prayer is a compelling wonder. I mean, God acting on the earth in response to ordinary conversation with a human being. That's better than we dare to imagine most of the time. How could it be? How could there be a God, really, who's that powerful and that personal? Walter Wink said it best. The message is clear. History belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being. But prayer is also a confounding mystery. Because when you tell stories like those, half the room will be motivated by them and the other half will be confused or maybe even angered by them. Like, that's great. I'm really happy for your brother-in-law. I honestly am. But uh, what about all the very similar stories where the prayers went unanswered? All the people who prayed and prayed and prayed and then watched their loved ones die. And what about if that's not an existential question, it's a personal one? What if it's not a hypothetical story? That's my story. If we insist on celebrating divine action, then can someone please explain divine silence? I'm truly happy for Augustine and his mom, but what took God so long? I mean, why wait decades to answer a prayer and then answer it? Is there some kind of divine code and she finally just cracked the safe? Or is God just lazy and unmotivated most of the time and she finally asked him in the right moment? And in what other context does it make sense to withhold divine power for decades that you're going to eventually give anyway? And I guess it's inspiring that the Koreans are up before the sun praying, but what's actually come of that? I mean, are there any metrics to show that anything more is happening there than just the psychological benefits of early morning meditation and some good old-fashioned camaraderie? You see, the question that I'm circling around now is this one. Do my prayers actually matter? Do they make a real difference in the real world? Is anything happening because I prayed that wasn't going to happen if I didn't? Or is anything not happening because I prayed that was bound to happen otherwise? Do my prayers matter? It was the famed novelist Kurt Vonnegut who said, I don't think it at all likely that God requires the ill-informed and contradictory advice of us humans as to how to run the world. If he is all wise as you say he is, doesn't he already know what is best? 
And if he is all good, won't he do it whether we pray or not? So for however many of us have a fire burning in our heart alongside Walter Wink, at least that many of us are just sort of shrugging our shoulders with Kurt Vonnegut. You see, here is where our prayers tend to live, paralyzed between wonder and mystery. History belongs to the intercessors. Yes, that is our God. And then we actually begin to pray. And all the confidence that we felt after the inspiring story is swallowed up in the tsunami of questions, doubts, confusion, and a whole bunch of past disappointment. And don't get me wrong, I mean, we keep on praying in this paralyzed space between wonder and mystery. We just don't pray the Jesus way. We pray the safest kind of prayers, the ones that are so passive and vague, we'd never really know if God answered them or not. We do those rhetorical gymnastics that you learn uh, if you go a long way in the American church, of praying prayers in such a way that prevents God from either disappointing me or surprising me in response to this thing. So just as a thought experiment, think of everything that you personally have prayed for in the last week. And if God just unleashed a triumphant yes to every last request, what would happen? What would happen in you? What would happen in your family? What would happen in your community? What would happen in your church? What would happen in your city? Save one or two particularly bold or naive people, the answer is usually very little. See, this is where our prayers live, paralyzed between wonder and mystery. So you have been going through this teaching series in 1 Timothy, and I'm gonna pick up tonight with the opening lines of chapter two, which reads, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior. So Paul urges Timothy to make prayer his first and primary work. And he, he makes all kinds of prayer that. There's petitions, that's prayers for what I need and want. And then intercession, that means prayer for others. There's thanksgiving, which is gratitude and praise. It's a lot like that question Jesus' disciples once asked him. Teach us to pray. And he responded by praying, by praying that prayer that we know today as the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father, depending on your tradition. Matthew chapter six has the longest version. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. Oh, beautiful. I mean, one God and Father over the whole world. I love that part. Hallowed be your name. Oh, touch resistant on that one. Because it does make God seem like a bit of a cosmic megalomaniac or some kind of narcissist. But I guess if he really is this powerful and this loving, he's earned a bit of hallowing, so I can get there. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's where he loses us. I mean, prayer is a way to meditate and let, let go. Absolutely. Prayer as a centering exercise. Oh, it's essential. Prayer as a channel to be reformed from the inside out. You bet. Prayer that really works. Like the sort of prayer that joins God in, in, in bringing in redemption and pushing back the darkness. The sort of prayer that actually makes a visible tangible difference in the real world and the real relationships I hold in the real world, the sort of prayer that brings heaven to earth, here is where our opinions on prayer tend to splinter in all sorts of different directions. This is where he loses us. 
And look, Jesus did everything he could to make sure he didn't lose us here. I mean, he kept on saying this sort of thing. Let me just give you a few quotes directly from the mouth of Jesus on the subject of prayer. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock, and the door will be opened to you. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. And then if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? I mean, if we really took Jesus seriously in the invitation to prayer, if we really believed this, we'd all have the same problem as that Korean church. But we don't. Because we don't buy it. Not entirely, anyway. You see, it's true that prayer is both a wonder and a mystery, but I believe that prayer is mostly a profound invitation. In fact, I believe that prayer is the most profound invitation that God offers us this side of grace, and it is not for the pious or for the lucky, it is for all of us. And the on earth as it is in heaven kind of prayer that I'm referring to is technically called intercessory prayer. Now, uh, biblically, intercession comes from the Old Testament Hebrew word palgah, and in the New Testament, it's the Greek word entiuxis. The English word is derived from the Latin intercedo, which means to come between, or, or to pass between two parties, to mediate. So in layman's terms, intercessory prayer means to pray for someone else. And the motive behind all true intercessory prayer is love for another. Uh, Jesus is not describing some real-life version of wishes to a genie, where if you rub the lamp just right, you'll get uh, whatever you ask for. He's talking about the kind of prayer that starts with love for someone else and then ends in inviting God's power to partner with that love. Intercession is a willing and intentional choice to turn from that endless spiral into myself, my needs, my wants, my problems, my thing, to the desires, needs, and circumstances of another, meaning to utter even a single syllable of intercessory prayer is a profound act of selfless love. Richard Foster offers my very favorite definition. If we truly love people, we will desire for them far more than is within our power to give them, and this will lead us to prayer. Intercession is a way of loving others. Intercessory prayer is a selfless prayer, even a self-giving prayer. In the ongoing work of the kingdom of God, nothing is more important than intercessory prayer. So to see the invitation and to begin to regain movement from this paralyzed place that so many of us get stuck when it comes to prayer, uh, we need to go all the way back to the very beginning. So tonight I wanna give you God's original plan when it comes to prayer. And I'm going to walk you through the biblical story of prayer in four major episodes, creation, fall, promise, and Jesus. So both of you who brought your Bibles tonight, please turn to Genesis chapter 1. The rest of you have provided the scriptures for you on the screen. You're very welcome. I know it's a bit of an intense intro. It's a guest speaker. You don't expect them just to come at you like that. But I'll lighten up from here. All right? Okay, so episode 1, creation, the life God intended. So all the way back on the Bible's opening page, at the very beginning of the world, God created Adam. But the Hebrew Adam literally means person or human. 
In fact, uh, whenever you and I read man or mankind in our English translations of the Bible elsewhere in Genesis, we're often reading that same Hebrew word Adam translated differently elsewhere in the narrative. You see, this is a collective noun in the Hebrew, uh, which means that it may be used to refer to an individual named Adam and to all of humankind collectively simultaneously. So the claim found that's tied up in the name of the first person in human history on the Bible's first page is this one, that this isn't just the story of God and one guy named Adam. This is the story of God and all of us. This is every individual story. The great existential question that has plagued every philosopher dating all the way back through recorded history goes something like, why are we here? Or to state that theistically, why was, was I created? Genesis offers a surprisingly direct answer to that great question. This is Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over all the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So why were you created? The biblical answer is to rule. And this isn't a manipulative, power-hungry sort of rule. It's an image of God, an imago Dei kind of authority, ruling on earth as a direct re re reflection of his great Trinitarian character. The same language for all of humanity in Genesis is found elsewhere in ancient Near Eastern lit literature, used to refer only to kings and queens. Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs says, in the ancient world, it was rulers, emperors, and pharaohs who were held to be in the image of God. So what Genesis was saying was that we are all royalty. Human beings were made to be intercessors, participating in lovingly overseeing the world alongside God. God made Adam and Eve his managers here on the earth, to put it in language that we're more familiar with today. His intercessors trusted to call the shots. Psalm 115 says it bluntly, the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to mankind. Now it's very important that we understand the meaning of this given. God did not completely forfeit the earth to people, dust off his divine hands and then get on to the next project. That is not the biblical story. He maintained and maintains sovereignty and ultimate governing authority over the activities of his own creation. But God did and does actually share the responsibility of ruling the earth with people. Or to say it biblically, God really did make us his intercessors. God created you and I in his image and then gave us a creation to manage. This place we inhabit is our assignment to spread his image over every square inch. Episode two, fall, the life we actually live. Now if you're paying attention, you should be asking the obvious question, where did it all go wrong? Because if God's plan is for people to rule his creation as, as his image bearers, we're honestly doing a subpar job, and that's putting it politely. I mean, the environment's falling apart to the degree that scientists are predicting an end date on when this planet can support human life. And natural resources are being pillaged from the nations that need the most and overconsumed by the nations that already have plenty. Half the world's dying of starvation, while the other half dies of obesity-related diseases. So the obvious question for anyone earmarking the page at the end of Genesis 2 is, where did God's intentions for creation go so horribly wrong? And scripture makes the claim that all this dysfunction is the result of one great deception, that you and I lost who we are, that we forfeited our roles as God's intercessors, co-managing his creation. And that story is a familiar one. 
Satan, depicted as a serpent, tempts Adam and Eve. In Genesis 1, God empowers people to rule and reign over, over the animals. In Genesis 3, an animal rules and reigns over them. The intercessor role that God created you and I for in Genesis 1 was usurped by Satan in Genesis 3. They believed his deception, they act on that deception, and then pain and suffering enters our world. And with that, the line of communication between God and people was fractured. The intercessor role that God created you and I for was lost to a spiritual enemy through deception, resulting in paralyzation. It's a little bit like this. I've got a friend named Russell who a few years ago got into a motorbike accident that left him with a severe brain injury. He was on vacation just outside of Nashville, and he got up before the sun one morning, hopped on his motorbike, and took this windy rural road to a spot that he had scouted, where he was going to set up his camera and tripod and catch the sunrise by time lapse. Only another driver found him much later that morning, splayed out on the side of the road. He had to be life flighted to the hospital uh, and he was in a completely comatose state. For a long time, they thought there was no chance he would wake up. Miraculously, days later, with every medical reason to give up hope, his eyes just opened. He was alive, but he had also sustained a severe brain injury that would change his life going forward. So for months afterward, Russell lived at a rehab facility trying to retrain the damaged part of his brain, which was the part connected to his motor skills. So his brain activity was working fine, but you could not tell that by looking at him. The simplest, most unconscious thought would just pass through his mind, like move your right hand, but his right hand would just stay right there, glued to his own thigh. Uh, the damage put into terms by the doctors that I could understand was this. Somewhere between Russell's head and his hand, there's been a communication breach. So he still has all the intellectual capacity of a gifted, created, young professional in his late 20s, but on my first visit to see him, he had to be fed ice chips by a nurse by hand. And as she was slipping an ice chip in, like, through his teeth with her latex-gloved hand, and I was looking there at his face, his eyes were wide, almost with terror, because Russell was trapped inside a body that didn't work. All of his intellectual capacity was just fine, but somewhere between his head and his body, there was a communication breach, and he was trapped. And I sat there staring back at him just as intently, though instead of terror, my eyes were filled with tears because I wanted so badly to free him, but this was a lock that I could not pick. The imprisonment was inside of him. And that is something like the condition that we are left in at the end of Genesis 3. We're trapped in this communication breach. God created us with an inseparable connection between his mind and our action. We are called his body here on the earth. But the line of communication was fractured in the fall. And so we can look around today and see dysfunction around us everywhere, suffering, pain, injustice, oppression, but we lack the full capacity to set the world right, to rule in the language of Genesis. Because somewhere between God's mind and our action, the signals are cut off. We still carry all the uh, image and authority of a perfect loving God. It's all still there, but we are paralyzed in a communication breach, and the imprisonment is inside of us. Episode three, promise, the living victory. So if you would, just turn ahead with me now. If you're tracking along to Genesis chapter three, I'm going to pick up in verse 15. Now, some of you may be getting a little bit nervous that we're still just in Genesis and wondering how long we're going to be here this evening. Do not fear. I'm going to pick up the pace significantly. 
from right here, okay? Genesis chapter three, verse 15, God speaking to Satan says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now head is biblical imagery for manager or intercessor. So God's very first promise spoken immediately after the authority that we lost was this. Through human offspring, I will send one who will recover your intended role. God's very first promise was, I will make you intercessors again. The prophet Isaiah foretold the birth of the coming Messiah, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. God is coming to earth as one of us. The author is writing himself into the story in the person of Jesus, for to us a child is born. That is a showstopper on Christmas Eve by candlelight. But it's a whole lot more than that. The government will be on his shoulders. That's authority language. It's rule language. It's Genesis language. A fitting restatement of Isaiah's very uh, famous promise is this. He's coming to win back the role that you lost to repair the communication breach. Jesus, the living fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy said in John 12, now is the time for the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So why were you and I created? To rule. And what does Jesus call Satan? Ruler. That's Genesis language. And what does Jesus promise to win your rule back? That's the Genesis promise. And at the close of the Gospels, after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he sums up his whole victory in these famous words. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. God won your authority back. He restored the very position for which you and I were created. He stepped into the tension that you and I feel all the time, and he cut away through it. He made us intercessors again, repairing the broken or fractured communication breach. Now look all the way ahead with me to John chapter 16. This brings us to our final episode, Jesus, the restoration of prayer. Now, if you're still with me, and I'm painfully aware that there's always a chance that I've lost some of you in the weeds somewhere along the way here, but if you're still with me, you should be thinking, all that's great, man. But what on earth does any of that have to do with prayer? I'm so glad that you asked. It all gets completely cleared up by the most confusing thing that Jesus ever said, which is found in John chapter 16. On the final night of his life, in a candid moment with his disciples, Jesus said this. I'm going to read to you from verse 7. Very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's not you, it's me. I'm no good for you. It'll be better if I go, you'll see. It's a sitcom breakup speech, right? And Jesus is offering his disciples a classic breakup speech. He is saying to them with a straight face, I'm leaving. But that's going to make everything so much better. Now, it may sound like a breakup speech, but it's the furthest thing from it. Jesus is talking about prayer. In the same breath, he goes on to explain this. Jump down to verse 23. In that day, meaning the day when he's gone, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. You see, Jesus is unmistakably explaining, you've gotten used to bring your requests, needs, questions, and complaints to me in person, but now you're gonna go directly to the Father just as you've seen me doing. He's talking about prayer. 
Prayer is the pathway that he's cut for us to get back to God's original plan. Prayer is the way that we can rule, manage, and intercede in this world. Prayer is the repair of the communication breach that paralyzes us. Philip Yancey says, of all the means God could have used, prayer seems the weakest, slipperiest, and easiest to ignore. So it is, unless Jesus was right in that most baffling claim. He went away for our sakes as a form of power sharing, to invite us into direct communion with God and to give us a crucial role in the struggle against the forces of evil. God has shared his power with you. He calls you a co-manager of heaven walking around here on earth. Prayer is how that goes from a biblical rumor to your actual everyday life. Jesus is very plainly telling his disciples, until now you have never really prayed. Not like I designed it, but when I go to the Father, you'll discover prayer in my name. Now that ancient phrase, in my name, it can also be, or equally be translated, under my authority. To pray in Jesus' name means to pray with recovered authority. The authority that you lost, he has won back on your behalf and then given to you freely. You see, in Jesus' name was never meant just to become a tagline at the end of the prayers of experienced Christians. It is the exercise of Jesus' victory. To pray in Jesus' name is to pray uh, with the recovered authority that he has won for us. Larry Hurtado says, to pray in Jesus' name means that we enter into Jesus' status in God's favor and invoke Jesus' standing with God. Now, you're not Jesus, but if you are a follower of Jesus, then every time you pray, you come before the Father clothed in the robe and crown of a ruler. In the eyes of heaven, you are filled with Jesus' status and standing. One way to say it is this. When God won your authority back, God was winning prayer back. Karl Barth famously said, to clasp the hands in prayer is the, be- is, is the beginning of an uprise against the disorder of the world. So prayer is the means by which we push back the curse that's infected the whole world and infected us. John Wimber said prayer is meeting the needs of others on the basis of God's resources. So prayer is heaven's highest security clearance. It is to stroll into the heavenly vault, collect everything that you can carry, and then walk back into creation and begin distributing it where it is needed. Uh, Prayer is to plunder the riches of heaven and then offer them to those who are needing them most. Intercession is a way of saying, oh God, you've missed some here. And we're going to need some of your redemption over here. It is the distribution of resources in the familiar environments of our everyday lives, among our coworkers and roommates and neighbors and strangers and among high rises and housing projects and mansions and homeless shelters, bringing heaven to earth. That, my friends, is prayer. You see, intercessory prayer is simultaneously the way that God restores our world and restores the God-given identity that was breathed into you and me at first. And all of that being true, and it absolutely is, the church's worst kept secret in history is this, that most people, even most Christians, don't really like prayer. I mean, we do it, Uh, because out of guilt or obligation, or maybe because we know that it's good for us. And that makes prayer the spiritual equivalent to taking a shot of wheatgrass. (laughs) Like, this is not gonna taste good going down, but I gotta get these nutrients in me somehow, so here we go, baby. But what if, according to Jesus, 
you've never really prayed. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. What if you've never come before the Father wearing the robes and crown of the ruler, carrying the status and standing of the Son? What if you've never plundered the riches of the heavenly vault? Or what if you've never pushed back the curse alongside God? The victory's already been won. He's just looking for some, impl- uh, for some intercessors to implement that victory. Hold on, that's prayer? I could see myself waking up a little bit earlier for that. I could use my lunch hour differently for that. I might even skip a meal or two for that. And here's the best part of the whole story, the bit that really blows my mind, is that God doesn't need intercessors managing his creation. I mean, he's not overwhelmed by all the responsibility of overseeing the world. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, and completely outside of time. He's got this. God chooses intercessors. Except in the most extraordinary and rare of cases, God has limited himself, his power, and his mission on the earth to the management of imperfect, ordinary people just like you and me. I wonder what God is longing to do. And he's just waiting for someone like you, a manager in his household, to ask him. See, we dream of a God who brings heaven to earth. God dreams of praying people to share heaven with. P.T. Forsyth went so far as to call our prayers the answer to God's prayers. So again, I'll just pose the simplest question. If God answered in a great triumphant yes to everything you've prayed for in the last week, what would happen? And the only reason that I ask is because you are a ruler, you are a co-heir with Christ, a manager of heavenly resources. What are you doing with all of that authority? If we really took Jesus seriously in the invitation to prayer, what would happen? What would happen in you? What would happen in us? What would happen in your city? Isn't it worth finding that out? So I wanna close with this. Um, Whenever someone asks me, someone outside of the church, and I'm getting to know them as a friend, and then they discover that I'm a pastor, they usually respond to that with this mixture of disappointment and intrigue. Like it's some combination of, oh, you were seeming so normal. (laughs) And, huh, people still do that. (laughs) And if we get to know each other well enough, then that question usually resurfaces, that what do you do question. Only now it's phrased as something like, so why did you decide to become a pastor? I mean, did you grow up in some super weird, hyper-conservative, ultra-manipulative religious environment? Or do you come from a long line of people that are just struggling to let go of some dying religious ideal? What happened to you, man? And the answer is prayer. You see, when I was 13 years old, I wasn't sure I was buying all this Jesus stuff. I mean, I was a curious kid, but I was not an easy sell. Like, look, if this thing is real, then I want in, but if it's a fairy tale, I'd prefer to find out sooner than later so I don't waste so much of my life singing these mediocre songs and going to all these meetings. That was my logic at the time. And it was then that a mentor approached me with this experiment of sorts. Like, what do you think God would do in the lives of your unbelieving friends? If you spent every day this summer just walking a circle around your school praying for everyone in your upcoming eighth grade class. I have no idea. And he just said, why don't you find that out? And I liked that idea. 
So every single day of that summer vacation, my older brother drove me to the one place that I had planned to avoid, school. And I wore a dirt path in the thick summer grass, walking the school grounds with a folded up student directory in my hand. Do you remember the days when they gave you everyone's phone number and address? <laughs> holding that thing in my hand, holding everyone in my upcoming eighth grade class before God. This dingy public middle school is the very foundation of who I am. It is where God shaped me more profoundly than anywhere else. Something happened to me that summer. I fell in love with the God that I wasn't even sure was listening. And I discovered that I didn't just need God in some ultimate sense, but that I liked God. I enjoyed his company. I looked forward to his presence. And I thought he might just be enjoying mine. That's all that I knew for sure. So on the first day back at school, I asked to speak to the principal. I just walked straight into the principal's office that I had narrowly avoided the previous two years, and I just came right out with it. I asked him, what if I started a new extracurricular program in the school, one about Jesus? And he said, well, you need a teacher sponsor. Every school club has to have a teacher sponsor. So if you can find a teacher to sponsor it, you can go for it. That's how I ended up leading a Christian outreach meeting in a fluorescent-lit, white-tiled math classroom at Brentwood Middle School. We met at 6.30 a.m. on Wednesday mornings. Convenient time. It's a strong start. You know, what 12 or 13-year-old doesn't want to consider existential questions of meaning and purpose daily before the sun comes up, right? <laughs> my entire strategy for leading these meetings was very simple. I would sit in my bedroom on Tuesday evenings, open the Bible at complete random to a page somewhere in the middle, pick out a paragraph with no understanding or context outside of it, and jot down a few notes on a sheet of loose-leaf paper about what I thought it probably meant, and then share that with whoever happened to show up the following morning. <laughs> It was a recipe for disaster, not for revival. But I did have this one thing going for me. I prayed. I went to school an hour early on Wednesdays to lead that group, so I went to school an hour early on Tuesdays to pray by myself, walking that same familiar circle, and on Thursday mornings to pray with anyone that wanted to pray with me. I kept on carrying that now pocket crease student directory, holding all of those people before Jesus. My mom, the believer who led me to faith, actually sat me down in middle school and asked me to chill out with all the prayer because she was losing so much sleep taking me to school so early in the morning. A couple months into those meetings, so many students were coming that we had to move from the math classroom into the school's theater. By the end of that school year, approximately a third of my eighth grade class had come into relationship with Jesus in the darkness of the early morning with all the atmosphere of hospital lighting, hold on, through the potentially heretical sermons of a 13-year-old skeptic. <laughs> we dream of a God who brings heaven to earth. God dreams of praying people to share heaven with. It is either completely ludicrous or utterly breathtaking to think that in the midst of all the insecurity of a 13-year-old boy, like the, the nerves of going out for the basketball team, the awkward and slightly late arrival of puberty, and the sweaty palms of school dances, that there was also the spirit of the living God bending history in response to the prayed mumblings of a kid. And not because he finds this kid particularly brilliant or his ideas of how to run the world that insightful, simply because he finds this kid and all of his adolescent insecurity irresistibly lovable. That's ludicrous, or it's breathtaking. 
Now, I don't have any family in that town anymore, but my in-laws do live about a half hour away. And I was there for the holidays a few years back, and I started thinking, you know, I've not laid eyes on that school building in about 20 years now. And so I drove back to that school, timed my arrival for 6.30 a.m., just for old times' sake. And I'll never forget pulling up to the intersection where I could overlook that middle school that I hadn't seen in a couple decades, and I just broke down weeping behind my mother-in-law's borrowed car because I was laying eyes on holy ground. And then I got out of the car and I stood in this little cleft that was cut into a hill in front of the school where I would sit and pray alone on Tuesday mornings. And I walked over to this patch of sidewalk, go to the next slide, where I would sit with a growing number of students uh, praying for their friends and classmates over the course of that school year. And I walked that same circle that I had worn into the grass that summer in prayer to God. So to you, that's just an old public middle school, probably in need of a bit of government funding and maybe some mild renovations. And to me, that thing is holy ground because that is the place that God started something in me that's never stopped. It's the place that I discovered what Jesus was talking about when he said, pray in my name. And so I walked to the ground with, and prayed with tears streaming down my face through a trembling voice that could barely get a word out and something began to rise up within me like my soul was waking up again. This ancient invitation widening my eyes to the same kind of radical adventure. And so one visit wasn't enough. I had to go back. So on New Year's Eve, I was out with my wife for dinner and after dessert, I said, you know, babe, where would be a romantic place to ring in the new year? It's my public middle school you didn't attend. <laughs> so we hustled back to that school because I wanted to be there when the clock turned to 2019. Yes, it is awesome to be married to me. <laughs> now I, I went back not because I thought that if I did, God would do what I wanted him to do or because there's some kind of mystical power in lining up our request to God with our calendar. It's because that's where I wanted to be. I wanted to be with the Father. And that night, I did not become any more his son. God didn't love me more that night than he has any other night. And God did not prefer my company to the company of others who were out dancing and toasting champagne. But in a world that, for the most part, rejects him, ignores him, and chooses any distraction over him, think of how much it must bless the heart of the Father to say, I choose you over every other option. And prayer is about that. It's about being with the Father before it's about anything else. It is a disservice to talk about prayer and to lead with results. Prayer doesn't start with outcomes. Uh, we cannot brush past presence with the Father and arrive at anything close but the sort of prayer that Jesus won for us. Prayer is about presence. It's about a longing to be with the Father before it's about anything else. So there I am, walking the circle around that middle school, that familiar prayer circle that's defined my life because what God started in me as a 13-year-old kid has never stopped. I spend the dark hours of the early morning walking and talking with Jesus, and it is not the gritting your teeth, come on, God, I'm putting in the work, you owe me this thing kind of prayer. It is the joy of my life. But that night in particular, as the clock was turning to a new year and I was walking that path of prayer that symbolizes so much for me, I could only get one small prayer out through tears of joy in this quaking voice. Do it again, Lord. Every chance I get, I return to that place 
and I walk that circle again, only with new circumstances and new people and a new city in mind. But I always go back, and every time I do, there's only one thing I ever really pray, do it again, Lord. What I saw you do here among ordinary people in an ordinary place, do it again. What I saw you pour out here 25 years ago, now pour out a double portion, this time in Portland, this time in Colorado Springs, do it again among businessmen and stay-at-home parents and distracted, uninterested middle school kids. Do it again, Lord. You know that world prayer center that you guys have just across the parking lot? I mean, to anyone else, that thing's an oversized banquet hall with an above-average view. But to us, what if that's holy ground? Because it's the place that many of you are going to meet God in this personal way called prayer. It's the place that many of you will find the courage to ask him the very question his disciples asked him, teach us to pray and go on the wild adventure that ensued from that question. It's the place that many of you will discover the recovered authority that you were created to inhabit for the very first time. It's the place that many of you will discover what it feels like to stand on your feet clothed in the status and standing of Jesus when you pray. And it is the place that many of you will have your heart broken with compassion so that your intercessions can flow from a place of love and then be joined by God's power. So to anything else, it's an oversized, or to anyone else, it's oversized banquet hall with an above average view, but to us, that's holy ground. See, we dream of a God who brings heaven to earth. God dreams of praying people to share heaven with. So if we really took Jesus seriously, on his invitation to prayer, seriously enough to put the theory into practice, what would happen in you? What would happen in this church? What would happen in your workplace and among your friends and in your neighborhood and in your city? Why don't you find that out? Can we stand and I'll pray over you to close? As a spirit of the living God, I don't even fully understand theologically how this works, but what I want to ask for is an impartation, Lord, that you would take some of the best parts of my story, some of the sacred places of communing with you that you've written into me, and that you would give that away right now to every hungry heart that is in the room to everyone that is having longing awakened within them tonight, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would release a great yes over their life and that you would write a unique version of a similar story in them. And I thank you, Jesus, for New Life Church. I thank you that, that this community has been a people of prayer for a long time. And the Psalms say that Pilgrims, people on pilgrimages with you, they, they go from strength to strength. And so I pray that your faithfulness to this church in, in their history would only be indicative of the strength that you have in store for them in the years ahead. And so would the next season of prayer, the next chapter at this church be somehow even sweeter than the last. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you say amen, church?